to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. This is Rick Paschkett, and welcome to the ABA's Business Law Section podcast platform, To the Extent That. Today's series is Lessons I Learned to Be More Effective as a Woman Lawyer under the general heading of Business Law Section Leadership. Our host for this podcast is Kate Lecter. Kate is an associate in Trussler LLP's Chicago's office in the firm's litigation practice. Kate is a vice chair of the ABA Business Law Section Women's Commercial and Business Advocates Committee vice chair. Kate, I will turn the podcast to you and let you introduce today's guest. Thank you, Rick. And hello to everyone. And thank you for listening. I'm very excited to speak with and interview Mian Wong about her experiences as a litigator and her article titled, Lessons I Learned to Be More Effective as a Woman Lawyer. Mian is a shareholder in Greenberg Traurig's Boston office. She focuses her practice on high stakes business litigation and she represents public and private companies, financial institutions, directors, officers, and individuals before state and federal courts in commercial and bankruptcy litigation. In 2020, Mian was recognized by Boston Business Journal as a 40 under 40 honoree. Mian is a member of the ABA's business law section, and she is co-chair of the Women, Business, and Commercial Advocates Subcommittee. She is also involved in several other professional and community organizations. Welcome, Mian. Thank you, Kate. I'm so happy to be here with you. I am so excited to talk to you, and I'd love to start by getting to know what motivated you to become a lawyer? Um, <clears throat> what motivated me to become a lawyer, uh, I would have to say it went back to years ago um, after uh, college. I was in graduate school and I was interested in doing research on um, intellectual property discourse as promulgated by the um, Department of Justice, excuse me, the Ministry of Justice um, by the People's Republic of China. And in order for me to to do the type of research I wanted to, I was uh, advised by my professors that what I really needed is actually a foundation in law. So that- (laughs) Yes. So that kind of motivated me to start thinking about law school. And um, one thing led to another. Um, I ended up um, going to law school and finding myself really enjoying um, the law. And uh, so I, rather than having a PhD, I only have a master's, but I am now uh, a practicing attorney. So that's what (laughs) led me to become a lawyer. Only a master's and only a JD. That is absolutely (laughs) fascinating. And I know that your practice focuses litigation. What led you to this specific concentration? I think um, it's really the storytelling and the 
people aspect. Um, every opinion that you read in law school has a fact section, um, and and that tells of a story. Effective litigators learn to tell a very good story, and I think that's really what draws me to litigation. Advocating my client's story before a jury or before a judge. Was there anything particular in law school? And I know you also had a clerkship after law school that, that piqued that interest even more. I would have to say it was really my clerkship clerkship experience with Judge Alvin Thompson in District Court um, in Connecticut, and um, the 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 cases that um, I had the <clears throat> honor to work on, as well as the. Uh, approach Judge Thompson took um, in terms of respecting um, all the litigants that come before him, and in particular, the the joy that comes from naturalization process, um, all of that really inspired me to um, be inside of a courtroom as a litigator. That sounds like the perfect introduction to the courtroom, yes. and I think would excite many young lawyers or law students to pursue a career in the courtroom. That's right. There's no better uh, exposure to just so many areas of law um, than you would have um, in a clerkship. How long was your clerkship? I ended up uh, clerking for Judge Thompson for two years. It was uh, too good of a job to pass up after (laughs) a year. So when he asked if I was interested, I said, of course. That sounds fantastic. As a woman in litigation, are there any issues that you've experienced or particular challenges? The challenges um, I have experienced run from challenges that typical uh, junior uh, attorneys have once they uh, begin practicing. Um, and then other challenges may be um, because of being a woman. So, for example, um, I'm only 5'2", but I have come up against opponents, opposing counsel who's much taller uh, and just physically more commanding than I am. So you really have to be certain in your position and you can't let size, physical size, be uh, something that you get intimidated, um, as well as other more seasoned practitioners uh, on the other side may take advantage, regardless of whether you're a woman or a man, um, of just your perceived um, inexperience or perceived junior um, attorney position. So those are things that um, I think are challenges, both as a woman and just as a litigator in general. In mentioning the size difference that you may come across, for example, in the courtroom or in a deposition setting, have you found that over the last year, maybe participating in things like Zoom hearings or Zoom depositions, that that's changed? Yes. Uh, in particular, I remember specifically being struck by the fact that I was appearing with um, 
a partner. At the time, I was still an, a senior associate. So I was with a partner. We're appearing before a judge for a pretrial conference. And it was by Zoom. My box on Zoom was just as big as his box on Zoom. <laughs> and we were both two squares uh, or two rectangles on a uh, screen. So I was able to um, voice my position um, to support what my partner had said just as effective, perhaps even more effective, because as you know, um, if you were in a courtroom, um, only one attorney per side um, gets to speak. So sometimes in a courtroom, you would have to pass notes. Um, and that that has been effective. Um, but on the screen, when it was difficult to pass him a note, I was able to just um, do it in a polite way to add um, the facts to our side before the judge. And, and that was fine. So I did I do think that that allowed some equality um, in in terms of doing trial appearance online as opposed to in person. I will say I've I've really enjoyed and I feel like in certain circumstances, judges want to hear from other people. They're staring at the screen. They're seeing all our squares. And it's been very nice when opposing counsel is muted and you get the opportunity to speak and the judge specifically wants to hear from you. So in the past where maybe a size-wise, a bigger attorney or more seasoned attorney would try to position themselves to be sort of in the limelight or really commanding the show, I found that judges want to hear from one attorney at a time and will, I think, go out of their way to make sure other people are heard. That's right. I think that's right. Um, I do think judges like to give opportunities to either associates or more junior attorneys to speak, to be on their feet. Um, So Zoom provides uh, a vehicle for that. Um, And also, I, I was even thinking beyond just appearing in court. I think Zoom has the ability to be an equalizer for those practitioners who, for whatever reason, um, may be unable to attend in person um, or has um, some type of disability. Um, And I think just being on screen equalizes that before the court. That's such a great point. Really equalizing um, the voices of the attorneys and people Uh, presenting in court, making it more accessible. And I think scheduling has really helped in the past where I would have to carve out an entire half day to appear in court in maybe a different jurisdiction. Now I can pop in from my office or anywhere else. And I think that really has been a benefit to attorneys and and also the clients we represent. That's right. And so it'd be interesting to see what the role of virtual courtroom appearances or hearings will be in the coming months. And just sticking kind of with the Zoom scenario that we're currently in, have you taken many depositions or prepared many witnesses via Zoom over the past year? Yes, um, quite a number, uh, actually um, at least 14 
Oh, wow. Depositions have been oh, done wow. by Zoom in, in one case, um, and it was all by Zoom. Um, witness prep has been by Zoom. Um, it, it's it, it takes a little bit. I think after the first time where we learned about what works and what didn't, what platform was best to use, um, you know, we kind of learned what would be best to do. For example, we found it helpful to provide a witness um, a binder of documents um, to be used at the actual deposition. That was more helpful. Um, in addition to using the feature to share a screen on Zoom. Yes. Um, but it, it's a little hard for the witness to read on the screen. <laughs> That, that's an, an issue I've also encountered. I will say one of my favorite things about depositions on Zoom, and this speaks to just what you were speaking about as maybe issues you've encountered in litigation as a woman or based on size, is that I've found myself being much less intimidated by opposing counsel in deposition scenarios where we're all just staring at a screen and there's a little more distance or actually a lot of distance between us. So I'm hoping to keep that same mindset when we do return to in-person depositions. That's right. I think on Zoom, there's a feature where you can just hone in on the speaker um, and then the remaining participants are just these tight, smaller squares. So you there's a way to manipulate the screen where all you're zeroing on is the deponent and you can just kind of block out um, the opposing counsel because they will use tactics. Um, they will try to make objections to throw you off your game, um, be disruptive, um, basically create obstacles so that yeah. the deposition doesn't proceed um, as, as well as you would like. So I do agree that <laughs> one good thing about having a remote deposition um, is you kind of remove that physical aspect of intimidation and just, just physical presence um, that opposing counsel may have uh, an advantage if we were in person. Absolutely. And I would love to discuss your article, Lessons I Learned to Be More Effective as a Woman Lawyer. This article really resonated me for several reasons. And before discussing any of the content of the article, why did you decide to write this article and share your experiences? I really wanted to share these lessons for uh junior attorneys because I knew I really struggled um, over the years with these obstacles. And I, I felt like I, I was alone. And I wanted to write this for others out there that may be facing the same challenges as I had. Um, and just let them know that they're not alone and there are ways to overcome them. And it's a it's a, a, a process. Just because you're struggling with an obstacle today doesn't mean that you don't have the skill set to manage and, and improve and overcome, and that a lot of it will come with experience. So that's why that was really the 
impetus behind um, the article? I just found the article so incredibly helpful as an associate and as a woman who is often in the courtroom uh, via Zoom or uh, in person. And it, it, I felt so much comfort reading your words and hearing how you've addressed these obstacles in ways that have worked for you. So things like the anticipating and managing feelings of anxiety, of anxiety, I've really been focusing on in times when I'm getting nervous, even though I've prepared hours and hours for a deposition or a hearing to reframe that as excitement. So I'm still working on that, but that was one of my, my favorite parts of this article. That is also one of mine uh, uh, really favorite tricks that I, I've just picked up. Um, and and it, it has been um, so far a, a game changer. If I remember exactly what you mean by uh, preparing a deposition and going into it, and I was so nervous uh, leading up to the deposition. And then about an hour before going in, and I thought to myself, I'm just actually excited to do this. I've prepped, yeah. I've written my materials, I know where I want to go, and I'm just excited. And that actually framed, reframed my um my mind and refocused the energy um that you know I dubbed as anxiety into this is actually excitement. I mean, it's the a lot of it are the same physiological reactions that you experience. The, you know, I could feel my cheeks getting red. I could yeah. feel my heart pounding. I just feel like, you know, I'm like antsy. All of that is like also when I'm really excited about something. Um, so that, that's been one of my favorite thing, tips I've learned. And I was so happy to share with readers. I, I have to say another one of my favorite tips in here is the portion on being confident. I have found myself so often second guessing myself before somebody even challenges my view or opinion about something. I, I caught myself recently, I was sending an analysis to a supervising attorney who had asked for this analysis. And I started off my email by apologizing for the length of the analysis. And I thought about your article, I caught myself and I took out the apology and I immediately felt better. And in rereading the email, felt better about how I was communicating and even the work product attached to the email. So I'm I'm curious if you've had any surprising results or outcomes from implementing these lessons into your practice. I think the the lesson or the results surprising results I've learned from implementing them is um the confident thing definitely helps because I even even after writing the article, there are so many times where it just was a second nature for me to utter an apology, whether that be in writing or yeah. um, or in speaking. Um, it part of it, I think, it seems to be a speech pattern um, that I must have picked up somewhere, and and from speaking with other uh, women 
they also have a similar speech pattern in that. Um, so part of it may be the way uh, we've been socialized growing up. Um, sure. But so I'm, I'm very cognizant that, you know, the word I apologize or I'm so sorry or I'm sorry, those are actually saved for something that <laughs> warrants an apology um, and not just because it's a speech pattern that I've picked up. Um, and it, when I do that, then I think um, it makes two points. One, it does make my statements um, are more confident. And two, my apologies now actually mean something and that it's not been undercut because I just naturally apologize for as a routine matter. Um, So I think that that's been two good uh, results. Um, And the other thing is really um, the other, one of the other, other lessons is learning to understand how you can maximize your impact and, and um, the sub uh, category to that is how to learn to delegate. And that's been something that is necessary to remind myself during COVID because I'm by myself uh, at home working and, you know, thinking about writing an email, explaining what it is I'm looking for uh, to my assistant or another associate. Seems like all of that, I might as well just do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's been really um, something that I really needed to work on doing COVID. Um, But the surprising result is when I do delegate, uh, especially uh, with uh, junior attorneys, um, they just bring in, I mean, and this is something I I talk about in the article, they bring in different perspective. Um, and, and, And as the person delegating the task, Delegation, I think, does not necessarily mean you tell them step by step exactly what to do because otherwise they're, they're, there's no learning opportunity there. So it's a fine balance between what you need to, um, how you delegate and, and giving them enough room to still learn and grow and bring their own perspective um, into the task or assignment. Definitely. And um, something I've struggled with is delegating. And I think part of that is the control side of that. Another part for for some reason, and I don't know if this is just, again, kind of how I was raised and socialized, is I feel like I'm disturbing someone or asking for something I shouldn't be asking for. But then I reflect on times when a more senior attorney has delegated a task to me or gotten me involved in a project. And it's been a great learning experience for me. And I'm also able to bring my unique perspective to the assignment, uh, kind of like you were mentioning. So so that's something I've also really been working on and focusing on after reading your article. It's great to hear. And in my own experience delegating, I actually found um, that in that exchange, when a junior attorney is having follow-up questions, you're answering them. Uh, I've come to appreciate the patience my mentor had with me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So 
so I, I think uh, it comes full circle. And when I when I appreciate how much patience they had with me, that in of itself um, reminds me that I need to be patient with uh, uh, an, an associate, um, and and that's really how they will best learn um, from a more senior attorney. In addition to the lessons that you've outlined in your article, is there any advice that you would give to a first-year attorney? Yes, and I would say that this advice probably um, give I would give to any uh, attorney, junior attorney. And the advice is that the struggles that they may encounter in their practice, um, they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, they're there are struggles that other attorneys, um, regardless of year, years of practice, um, have have dealt with or are continuing to deal with. And one of the surprising things um, after the art, my article became published um, was I've heard from readers um, across the nation and um, with a mix of years of practice. Um, responding to it and say like these are things that I've struggled or am still dealing with. So I think that it's important to keep in mind that you're not alone. Yes. And I, I will say this just your article brought me back to earth in so many ways where if I'm sitting in the courtroom or I'm I'm sitting at a deposition, I'm not the only person here who's nervous. Yes. I'm I'm not the only person who is struggling with decision making. It's part of our profession and like you said, I am not alone. Yes. That's exactly right. I know we talked a bit earlier about kind of the shifts in our practices uh due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But I'm curious if any of the lessons outlined in your article have been outlined or not outlined, but have been amplified for you uh, during the past year? I think um, in addition to what I talked about before about delegating, the other thing that um, is a little bit harder to implement is try to not to, uh, try to be less apologetic. um, And I think this comes from writing more emails than chatting with people on the phone. Um, I just need to be a little bit more vigilant. And after writing emails, I go back and I strike out all the sorries or apologies (laughs) that are just in there because I'm, you know, as I'm typing, it's uh, more of like how I would speak. Um, So I go back and, and edit my emails. I like that. And that, that's something I'm, I'm trying to catch myself doing as well. And I guess, finally, for someone or anyone looking to be a more effective lawyer, are there any resources other than the ones you've included in your article that you would recommend? Yes, I would recommend um, three things. I would really recommend um, following uh, the Harvard Business Review, either on LinkedIn or a um, subscription. Their articles are actually very, they're very short, um, and they're also 
touch upon a lot of things that um, just professionals deal with in in the workplace, and they are not limited to the law. And I think that's that's why I think those um, tips and and strategies are helpful because it's not written from the perspective of practicing law, which makes those lessons or tips more universal. And the other two I would recommend is The Confidence Code. Um, It's a book um, written by Claire Shipman and Katie Kay. Uh, It talks about the science and art of self-assurance for women. It's a really fascinating uh, read for those that are interested. And then the other book I recommend is Executive Presence, The Missing Link Between Merit and Success by Sylvia Ann Hewlett. Um, Again, it was a great read um, and it really goes through um, how do you connect merit and success. And it's not just about doing good work. There are other aspects, soft skills that one have to work on. So those would be my recommendations. I will absolutely be checking out those recommendations and resources and we'll have some fun weekend reading in front of me. Well, Mian, thank you so much for your time and doing this interview. And also thank you again for sharing your lessons in your article titled Lessons I Learned to Be a More Effective as a Woman Lawyer. Thank you so much, Kay. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.